You're tuned to Radio Caroline on 199, home of the good guys. It's now exactly 8 o'clock. Tune to Radio Caroline on 199, your all-day music station. Not really. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Hello, I'm Stephen Coates. Pirate radio in the UK first erupted in the early 1960s when pop music stations such as Radio Caroline and Radio London started to broadcast from ships moored offshore or disused World War Sea forts in the North Sea, set up by wildcat entrepreneurs and music enthusiasts to meet the growing desire for pop and rock music which was just not being catered for by the BBC. It's an amazing story, a little window in countercultural time. And who better to tell it than my guest today, music writer Rob Chapman, returning to the Bureau for the second time. Last time he, Rob was here, he was talking about his latest book, The Lyrics of Sid Barrett, his second book on Sid Barrett, his previous one, A Very Irregular Head, the biography of Sid Barrett, and several other books written by Rob. And the one we're really focusing on today, I guess, is Selling the 60s, The Pirates and Pop Music Radio. Here he is. Hello, Rob. Hi, good to be here. Well, you wrote that book back in 92, Rob, but I imagine uh, you first came across Pirate Radio when you heard them when you were a kid, right? You ought to know me well enough by now to know I can name you the day, the time, the exact sofa I was sitting on. And um, no, I mean, I might have actually, I might have heard them unknowingly before hearing them knowingly, because I, I, I do remember there being pop radio on when I was with my mates hanging about, whatever you were doing, up the wreck or train spotting, there would be a radio there and it would be playing nonstop music all day, which presumably wouldn't have come from the BBC Light programme at the time. So then I must have heard them unwittingly. But the first, um, my first conscious awareness of the pirates was one night in January, February 1966, watching the local news. I grew up in Bedfordshire and um, Anglia Reports was on and they were reporting on the fact that the Radio Caroline South ship had run aground in a storm off um, Felixstowe. And there was the boat sort of breached in, you know, on the on the um, shingle, at, at, I think at Felixstowe, or was it, no, Frinton, sorry, Frinton. And I was fascinated by this. So I started absolutely drilling my dad with questions. So we just got home from a hard day's work, you know. So what's a pirate station, dad? Well, they play pop music all day on ships. What? Now you tell that to a 12-year-old who's banging to pop anyway. It's absolutely pop mad. What, out there on the sea right now, there are these ships and they're playing pop music 24 hours a day. And that was it. I was in. I, I mean, I remember him getting really annoyed with me. I remember just plugging so many questions at him. And, and how many of these stations are there? And probably some really inane questions as well. Like, well, are they actually pirates? You know, <laughs> That's a completely reasonable question, isn't it? Particularly if you're a kid. It's like, because it's what's more, what's more exciting than a pirate, you know. And the, the, thought, the thought of a pirate off, off the uh, shore of the UK in the North Sea, up to kind of mon- monkey business, is a sort of very exciting thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's Captain Pogwash. It's Radio Pogwash, yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember going to bed that night and actually, if not dreaming about it, laying in bed thinking, so right, now out there and of course the next morning i was straight on to my, our parents we have one of those old-fashioned radio grams you know that had a record player in it and a radio like a lot of people did you know it was an old bush radio gram and twiddling around trying to find them and i had a kind of broader initiation from an older boy who had a transistor radio there was always an older boy who had a who had a transistor in fact later on i became that older boy who always had the transistor but he was listening to them one evening and i think he sort of sensed my interest and he went along the the, the, the way the dial with me from left to right showing me where all the stations were and that was like manna from heaven for me because there it was so this is like this was probably about Whitson 1966 by then. And that was kind of the peak of the pirates anyway. There was about 12 stations running by then. And from then on, I was hooked. So I, I don't catch them from the very beginning when they started off in 64, but I'm there by sort of halfway through. But the trouble is after 18 months, they were made illegal. So my memories of pirate radio are always in this strange kind of yearning limbo land where I didn't experience the full era 
I got just enough of a snatch of it to wish I had have been there for all of it. Do you know what I mean? They were outlawed in the summer of 1967. Uh, I turned, yeah, I was 13 that, that November. So they were gone effectively by the time I hit my teens. So it's so just my earliest pop memories. For somebody listening now who's maybe heard of pirate radio or maybe associates it with their drum and bass stations in London and other cities, Bristol, you know, in the 80s, 90s or whatever. This is, with this is a sort of halcyon period, isn't it? 64 to 68. And, you know, when really it changed a lot of stuff. So, Rob, for somebody who doesn't know, right, I mean, the word pirate itself sort of indicates that there's something illegal, something dodgy, something fishy going on. Uh, and in this case, of course, um, you know, it's it's something which is going on offshore, as you said. So let's just set the scene. Like, why would you even need to have a pirate station? You know, what, what would make that illegal in the first place? Why would it need to be on a ship outside territorial waters of the UK? And of course, we'll come, into, we'll come on to it in a minute, the sort of commercial stuff. But what, was, what, you know, what were they offering culturally that you couldn't get from uh, the good old BBC? Well, I can understand why anyone looking back from now who wasn't around at the time would see this as a, as this completely a complete novelty, um, completely quirky. I always imagine you know, what Americans would make of this, who who are, are used to unlimited amounts of FM and AM radio in their country, um, but we didn't have that here. In the early nineteen sixties, you had. The BBC Monopoly Network, which was basically the light programme, which later became Radio 2, uh, the third network, which became Radio 3, and the home service, which became Radio 4. There was no designated Radio 1 equivalent pop channel at all. And apart from that, there was just Radio Luxembourg, which broadcasted from the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg in the evening on medium wave from about 7.30 till about 2 o'clock in the morning. And apart from that, there was nothing. Now, when you consider that the whole kind of beat boom started, you know, with the, the Beatles and the Stones and the rest of it, late 62, early 63, there's a period of about a year and a half where there is nowhere else for this stuff to go other than to the limited allocation of places on the BBC. And there was pop music played on the BBC. It's not as if um, there wasn't any at all. In, in fact, you know, I think people make far too much these days of the idea of the BBC ignoring pop music. They didn't ignore pop music at all. They, there were a lot of young people working in the BBC who were bang into it. They just didn't have the resources to be able to play non-stop music all day. There would be a Saturday morning show called Saturday Club, um, Sunday morning show called Easy Beat, Pick of the Pops on a Sunday evening, which was the rundown of the top, top 30 it would have been then, and just the odd little programme dotted away during the week. And... The BBC was tampered by the fact that it only had two and a half hours of needle time each day. Um, needle time being the amount you could actually allocate to played records rather than live sessions. And in fact, that uh, allocation hadn't gone up since the mid 1950s, I think. It was ridiculous. And so there was this whole world of beat music exploding out there. And there was the tremendous live scene and package tours and the rest of it. And there was a few TV outlets. But there was, there was nowhere on the radio you could hear this in any depth. Now, Ronan O'Reilly, who started Radio Caroline, um, very interesting guy. I mean, we could devote an hour just to talking about Ronan. Um, his father um, is of Irish extraction, obviously, Irish Republican extraction. His grandfather was the O'Reilly, who was a legendary figure in the Irish freedom movement who W.B. Yeats wrote a poem about and who was in fact killed in, during the Easter uprising. And his son, uh, Ronan's father, um, owns the, um, the, 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 uh, the shipping harbour at Greenall near Dublin. And he, was also, um, and he also ran, you know, transport by boats and the rest of it. So Ronan knew he could get a boat fitted out there in secrecy and um, then bring it across the UK mainland. And the reason... He realised, you, you know, you had to do it, as you say, outside of territorial waters. The, the, there was a three-mile limit there, and everything that was... Um, the the, the um, territorial waters extended to three miles from the coastline. Anything outside of that was international waters and wasn't um, prone to the jurisdiction of any one nation. 
So you were there, there were laws on the sea, but there was nothing to stop you actually broadcasting from the sea and beaming your program into Britain. Now, there were precedents for this. It didn't all begin in England, I hasten to add. There were a couple of stations in Sweden and in Holland, um, which precede um, Radio Caroline in London by two or three years. Um, and I think Ronan partly got the idea from that. If, like, if they can do it in Sweden and they can do it in... Um, and then they can do it in Holland. We can do it here. What you're saying there is, is that if you were moored outside territorial waters, in other words, you're in an international part of the ocean, what you do there can't be governed by the internal laws of that country. But within the country, was it illegal to listen to it? So I mean, it's a sort of strange legal situation, isn't it? So they couldn't stop people broadcasting. I mean, the pirates did exploit this kind of... Um this this juris, jurisdiction no man's land really where where somebody later said to me uh, he said we weren't prepared to do anything illegal but we were prepared to do things that were unlawful and there is a distinction that has to be drawn between illegal where there are laws and unlawful where there basically aren't any laws so therefore you could exploit the loopholes in the law um, this becomes very evident by the stations that weren't on ships, that they, the ones that commandeered the old um, sea force, like, sea force. Like, yeah, like, like Sealands did, yeah, which were built before the Second World War, um, basically to repel the idea of German invasion, because the, the thought being that the planes and, and indeed their ships would come up the Thames estuary. So they put these, these magnificent structures, I mean, they're, they're feats of architectural one. They're all still there, rotting and rusting away, but they mm. they've lost all their walkways, but they're there. And the people who first went on to them, David Such, in fact, Screaming Lord Such, who commandeered one for Radio Such, he found very early on that nobody knew who was in charge of them. Everyone just passed the buck. They they asked the Port of London Authority, no, nothing to do with us, mate. Try um, try marine fishing, no, nothing to do with us. Try central government, no, no, we, do, we don't maintain them. And they, they realised that these could effectively be squatted, and it was a kind of squatting right that was, you know, put into motion here, because nobody know who knew anymore who was in charge of um, their upkeep. And so they exploited that. So three or four of the stations weren't on ships at all, actually. They were on these sea forts, yeah. So, I mean, just to get a bit nerdy about the uh, licensing and broadcast stuff. So, because it's a bit of a mysterious one, isn't it? You've got a kind of broadcast, um, you know, a, a range of wavelengths, let's put it that way. And that territory of, you know, radio airwaves is, cl is claimed by a government state and they seek to control it. And they license it to their own broadcasters like the BBC or, you know, to the emergency services and various other things. Well, it was international agreements, actually. Those things were agreed internationally. But there were holes in that. There were gaps in those broadcast uh, spectrums. And the pirates were picking those gaps with Is that how they work? They'd find an empty bit of broadcast space, like you said, that your mate showed you on a transistor. And they would then broadcast on that uh, wavelength. Yes, they were, yeah, but, but it was all down to Roland's initiative. Nobody had really thought to do this before. I mean, when he set up Radio, when Radio Caroline started broadcasting on Easter Sunday, 1964, as, um, well, when I did the research for Selling the Sixes and I spoke to some of the original DJs, including um, the famous, the infamous Simon D, in fact, he said to me that we knew that basically when we first started, he said, you know, we were crapping ourselves. We didn't know what was going to happen. He said, we were expecting a gunboat to arrive at any minute and draw alongside us and tell us to cease and desist, you know. He said, but once nothing came alongside after a week or two, he realised they'd got away with it. And that was the feeling among everyone on Radio mm -hmm. Caroline. They haven't come out to stop us because they don't really know how, and so they're not going to. And from there on, and then that spawned from Radio Caroline and Radio Atlanta, uh, which then merged to become Radio's Caroline South and North. That then spawned a whole era, a three-and-a-half-year era of pirate radio and other stations um, came on board. Ronan O'Reilly, who you've described as, you know, he's kind of, I suppose these days you call him an entrepreneur, obviously already successful from a successful business family. So what was the motivation? I mean, it, it seems to me that there was a kind of combination somewhere of sort of entrepreneurial... Uh, an entrepreneurial attitude, because there was actually a commercial aspect to it, and also a sort of like anti-establishment attitude as well. Maybe even something a bit more noble, which is to do with like, well, giving we're going to give people what they really want, rather than the staid fare that they're getting on the BBC. Ronan was an anarchist. 
I mean, he says as much on a World in Action documentary in 1967 when they asked him, you know, what are your politics? He said, I suppose you could say I'm an anarchist. And again, as one of his main DJs said to me at one point, he said, Ronan took me aside one day and he said, look, and this does answer your question very succinctly, because he said, look, all these other stations, they're in it for the money. He goes, we're in it for a philosophy, an attitude. And Ronan has something else entirely going on there. You know, his view is that this was bigger than the boat. Radio Caroline to him was as much a concept, an embodiment of an ideal as it, as it was as a way of making money. Radio London, the other very successful station, in fact, the other station, which along with Caroline is synonymous with the offshore radio era, they were massively successful as a business operation. As their boss always said, Philip Birch, the head of Radio London said, I regard us as a business that just happens to be on a ship. I would rather this was all on land. I, I would rather we were legal. He said, but as we're not, we will do it in international waters. But in all other respects, we are a successful business that just happened to be on a boat. I mean, he came from a, he came from a business background. He'd worked for the J. Walter Thompson um, advertising agency. And, and, and Radio London had a very sound business model right from the start. And they made an enormous amount of money. They were incredibly successful with their advertising. Radio Caroline was successful with its advertising, but there was there was always more of a uh, genuinely rebellious spirit, I think, on Caroline. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm forcing this or not, but even when you listen to the stations, there was a kind of crackle and a kind of brashness to Caroline that wasn't on London, even though London had all these wonderful DJs like, you know, Kenny Everett, for instance, there was a law unto himself. Um, Caroline was the one that embodied those things you're talking about there, the genuinely rebellious spirit of it all. Radio London really, in a way, is the American AM model sort of come to these waters. As you- and, and, and they modelled it very much directly on the successful American top 40 stations too, yeah. Right. So, you know, that whole quite slick advertising, and as you say, they made a lot of, lot of money out of it. Um, so with, but with Caroline, you said it's, and Ronan O'Reilly in particular, it was more of this kind of anarchist, we want to do something different. I suppose in a way you could say the countercultural role. Radio Caroline was the countercultural model. And the fact that, I mean, leaping ahead, when they all closed down, Radio Caroline was the only one that carried on and defied the legislation. And then, in fact, came back in the 1970s in a very different form in many ways, and much more attuned to the music of the 70s, and much more overtly hippie-ish, in fact, as well. It was a it was a floating commune by the early 70s. I mean, Ronan died last year, you know, I mean, he had dementia for the last few years of his life, and he, he passed away last year. And I was really pleased to see some of the tributes there were to him, some of the obituaries, they were very fulsome, and um, they placed Ronan in the context where he belongs, because... He gets written out a bit. You know, when people talk about the, the great moves and shakers of the 60s and the, the famous bands and, you know, blah, blah, Twiggy, blah, blah, Bieber, blah, blah, all of that, you know, the swinging 60s model of things, Carnaby Street and the rest of it, you think a lot of this wouldn't have even happened if it hadn't been for Roland. If he hadn't been out there soundtracking the thing in the first place and having this music played, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how... Yeah, my great what if I play, the great hypothetical question for me is, imagine if the offshore pirates in the 60s hadn't have existed. What would the music scene have been like in the UK? Well, mm. I would surmise that undoubtedly there would have been a really thriving club scene. In fact, probably an even better thriving club scene because they wouldn't have had the radio outlets. But I don't think that the, the, the music industry, particularly the pop music industry, would have expanded in the way it did because they just wouldn't have been the outlets. I think the pirates were responsible, if not solely, then, you know, 90% of that expansion is due to you being able to take a record to these stations and they would plug it maybe once an hour every day. You, as a kid, going back to being a 12, 13-year-old, these were the golden days for listening to music for me because you could just go for a bit like it is now with internet radio, actually. You, you listen to a station on your presets and you only tune out when they play a bad record. In fact, let me just read this wonderful quote from Ian MacDonald who wrote Revolution in the Head and, you know, worked for the enemy during its peak years in the 70s. And he says this, I remember being in my back garden one day in the very hot summer of 1966, listening to Radio Caroline. Every single record they were playing was great. I just looked up at the sky in a sort of ecstasy and thought, this is fantastic. This is the best it's ever been. I think everyone from my generation agrees. 1965 to 67 were the peak years in pop. 
Now, you can take issue possibly with the last couple of sentences that maybe he has been a bit golden age in age that era, but he is absolutely right about that feeling about the pirates in the mid-60s. I had exactly that same feeling some days. You'd be listening to the radio for a, a half an hour, 45 minutes, and you'd think every one of these records they've played is brilliant. You know, and you haven't needed to change channel because they haven't played a duff record. And a lot of people of my age will have had that same feeling and that same self-aware feeling of like, I'm not sure it gets any better than this. And I, in some ways, radio-wise, I don't think it ever did, actually. I think so that was the peak of English pop radio. I had Billy Bragg on and we were talking about, because he's telling, you know, the history of Skiffle. You know, Skiffle, an underground, uh, you know, the first really kind of underground, uh, you know, movement of of young people's music outside the kind of jazz world in in the UK. And he was saying that, like you said, late 50s, you know, the BBC, Housewife Choice, you know, Listen With Mother, it was very staid stuff, easy listening, kind of crooner type music. Uh, you know, so I think when things like Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, which was obviously getting out there, people were hearing it and loving it, you know, you couldn't really hear it so much on the BBC. And then you've got all that going on. And then suddenly, 1964, there's this kind of eruption on the airwaves of, as you say, this kind of whole new world of music. Now, before that, you'd already mentioned that the BBC had a top 30 programme. So how were people, young people in particular, you know, how did things get into the charts? You know, it's not all as black and white as we're painted about rebellious youth and, you know, the state old BBC. Because I've said, as I've said before, there were some very, you know, keen pop orientated people working for the BBC. And there were some real hard nosed businessmen and quite square and straight, you know, people working for the pirates, you know. But Ronan initially, when he when he had to go and find the money to fund Radio Caroline, he knew he wasn't get, going to get this from any central broadcasting sort of corporation or committee or anything. And Ronan lived in Chelsea, just off the King's Road. And I've got a list somewhere when I was doing the research for the book. Um, I've got a list of all the original sponsors uh, or the original contributor funders for Radio Caroline. And loads of them it's like lots of um cadogan square dowagers it's, it's old money it's old chelsea money so there's an interesting aspect you know this wasn't built on on the youth quake of you know young entrepreneurs and all the rest of it this wasn't built on boutique money a lot of those people putting money into it was chelsea old money that you know because chelsea was a whole other world it always was going back to the bohemia there in the 1920s as you know you know chelsea always it's had it's always had its own little kind of micro economy going on hasn't it and its own micro cultural cultural economy as well and in fact when radio caroline first started they did play all the beatles and stones and stuff but they also played um a lot of what would now be called i suppose hip easy listening music they did play the more kind of like Mel Torme, Stan Getz, you know, end of big beat ballads and stuff. They, they played a lot of that music too. It wasn't just wall-to-wall pop music all day long at all. Again, in Selling the 60s, I did, I mean, I put in there one or two playlists because I thought it's really important to address this question of, you know, what did those stations actually sound like? Because otherwise you do just get a very shorthand impression of pop music and, and just that. Top, what do you mean, top 20? Well, no. I've got a couple of playlists here. I'll just selectively go through what they were playing. In one show, you have um, Ray Conniff, um, Billy J. Kramer and Coters, Ray Charles and Betty Carter, Jim Reeves, Etta James, The Searchers, Stanley Holloway with a little bit of luck from the My Fair Lady soundtrack, and then a track by Paul Anker. The next show I've got there, you've got Jimmy McGriff doing some hip, you know, R&B organ. Uh, Frank Sinatra, Ray Conniff again, Gene Pitney, Mantovani, Nat King Cole. Well, you know, you've probably seen a detecting a pattern here, aren't you? Brenda Lee, Cliff Richard, you know, The Shadows. In other words, lots of pre-beat music and not just. After a year or two, they really get that. After about, I'd say, a year, 18 months, certainly by the end of 1965, Radio Caroline is solely um, a pop music station and with a lot of, you know, soul and Tamla. R&B stuff in there as well but early on they were they were a real mixed bag of um, as I say pop and the kind of hipper end of easy listening stuff well let's talk about the people who are actually um, playing the records then I mean first of all with 
you know, running away. So he's got the boat. He's got the funding from his the, the, the Dowager Aunts in Chelsea and uh, that his circle. He's put together the boat. He's got the kind of technical, whatever it is, the marine technical know-how to do that. But where did he find the people, the DJs as they became known, you know, to play these records? And, and you know, and I suppose in a way, what was the... Who was determining the content? What do they call it? The playlists, you know, who was who was behind that? Playlist was a dirty word with Ronan. Look, the nearest Ronan ever came to a playlist, he said um, later on in 1965, he brought in what he called one in, one out. He said, the only pro, pro um, playlist I want is one in, one out, which means every other record has to be a chart record. Every other record has to be from the Caroline Top 50. Every other record apart from that, you can play what you like. You can play B-sides, EPs, LPs, oldies, whatever. And there's a wonderful, simple formula. But look, again, Ronan's, you know, life leading up to that is very interesting. He was he was part running the scene club in Soho. So he had access to, this is why he was heavily featuring people like Ray Charles and Jimmy McGriff and Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith, the jazz organist, actually went out onto the boat on Radio Caroline in 1964 and did a live set, you know. <laughs> um, so Ronan's world is that world of the early 60s hip underground clubs playing, you know, playing a lot of R&B for American servicemen. And um, so the people who came in initially through that were drawn from that kind of crowd. Um, he also ran um, a kind of English kind of uh, method access studio for a short while. I don't know. I doubt if it was very successful. Um, and so a lot of the people he brought in initially were people from that world, that Chelsea world. They weren't old-style disc jockeys. They, they weren't the kind of people who were trying to get a gig on the light programme at all. They were people more versed in... You see photos of them to this day, and they're not long-haired freaks. They've all got the like, little jazz goatees, and, you know, they all look like hip, early 60s jazz dudes, actually, a lot of them. <laughs> they, don't look like, they don't look like pop people, most of them at all. So that's where Ronan was getting his DJs. Um, up north, it was a bit different, because the Radio Caroline North ship... Um, it, had a very different identity. And in fact, it was only when I moved up here, I discovered just how popular Radio Caroline North was and how much it was set apart from Radio Caroline South. Obviously where I was living at the time in Bedfordshire, I was here in the South ship more. Um, but the North ship was, you know, they were playing far more stuff that was attuned to the, you know, the kind of mod, early proto mod sound of Lancashire, of, you know, of Manchester and Liverpool and the rest of it, you know, it was the same problem. Even the light program had there, there weren't, you know, mobile discos then there were, you know, you, you, you got actually a lot of funnily enough, a lot of people came in from things like drama and acting. Um, you had people or advertising, people who had done advertising voiceovers. So they had, good speaking voices you know they had well modulated come and see our car showrooms voices mm. you know so a lot of people came in that room actually mm. from, from advertising and from the theater because they were good at enunciating the actual dj as someone died in the wall kind of wanting to be just a dj that comes a bit later it's interesting though isn't it you know because when you think when it all starts what are your precedents you know you haven't got any there's nothing before you well, that's the, I mean, they, they were kind of inventing it in some way, right? A, bit, a little bit influenced by, by the BBC, but of course, maybe more influenced by what was happening in, the, in America, right? Yeah. And, and what that leads to, of course, is a kind of very mid-Atlantic accent a lot of the time. They're all trying to sound just a little bit American, but, but not too much, you know. So you do, you get the invention of this, what is now called the mid-Atlantic mid path. They're guys from Essex trying to sound like they're from, you know, Boston or New York. <laughs> They've got, you know, a little list here of uh, Caroline's um, presenters. Tony Blackburn, I don't know some of these people, whether Roger Gale, Mike Allen, Ray Terrett, Roger, Simon D, you mentioned him already. Um, there's quite a lot of Johnny Walker, uh, Dave Lee Travis, Tommy Vance. You know, these are all people who went on later, Emperor Roscoe. You know, went on later to be Radio One DJs, right? But um, so quite, quite a wide bunch, and some of them, you know, I mean, Tony Blackburn, bless him, still at it, right? And he had the sense, he had the business intuition, even then, was to know where the success was, and so he jumped ship in 1965 and joined Radio London and became right. much better known on Radio London too. But yeah, he started off on Caroline. That's right. Continue the Radio Caroline, Ronan O'Reilly story, uh, as he was the kind of. The anarchist end, if you like, of pirate broadcasting, offshore broadcasting. What happened? How did the authorities, including the BBC, respond? So, you know, 64 onwards, um, the pirates get going. And there's 
quite a lot of them, you know, some of them quite short-lived. But, I mean, how did the authorities, the broadcast authorities and the BBC respond to it? The pirates start up in the middle of 64. I think nothing happened for two years until, of course, there was rumblings that, look, we've got to close this down. They're getting too popular. Some of them are just blatantly stealing wavelengths and, um, you know, interfering with other countries' music broadcasts or national broadcasts. And the legislation comes in in August 67. And that's how long it took. They got away with it for that amount of time. It's like whether you're drawing up a legislation to outlaw raves in fields or, you know, repetitive beats and all the rest of it. That took two or three years, didn't it, from the original Acid House movement. In fact, it's quite a good parallel now, I think. Um, It takes that long. Um, do you want to talk about the legislation itself? Because the mechanism of that is quite interesting. You can give a kind of health and safety uh, reason for it, which is that, you know, maybe they're blocking uh, uh, airwaves that might be used by the emergency services or other more, other more important channels and stuff. But really, were they threatened by the popularity of it? I mean, the pirates themselves always used to massively exaggerate their own listening figures. Um, but having said that, you know, from the more reliable um polls that I saw, both Radio Caroline and London at their peak had an audience of about 12 million. That wouldn't have been far off what Tony Blackburn eventually had when he did the breakfast show on Radio 1. But when you think about it, that wouldn't have been a combined, um, that would have been a combined audience because people did interchangeably listen to both of those stations. So when you think in a population then of about, what, 50 or 60 million, you know, one in four people and mm. probably, you know, nine out of 10 young people were listening to the Pirates. Absolutely. So, yes, they were massively popular. Um, the wavelength thing, I mean, some people argue that they made more of a more of an issue of that than was necessary. And they, they contrived that as a way of getting rid of them. But the legislation itself is interesting because they realised they couldn't close the stations down at source. They couldn't go out there and tow them in. So what they made it illegal to do, and this is very canny of the legislators, they made it illegal for a British subject to work on advertise on or in any other way supply the stations so what they do is they cut off their supply lines that's what they did so they can't get food out there they can't you know you know you can't transport stuff out there can't get the records because the record is is although that didn't stop the industry getting the records out to radio caroline after illegality i mean that's the thing because you know the music it's worth mentioning this the music industry had quite a sort of um hypocritical attitude towards the pirates i mean on the one hand their director generals and their you know their head honchos would be saying we don't like these pirate chappies they're very bad for business you know meanwhile the minions down at sort of like street level who are the record pluggers and suppliers you know and the general gophers the pirates are saying to them well you know get out you know get those records out here we'll play them you get them to us we'll play them so there was lots of under the counter dealing going on you know official line is you know don't let them play our records. Unofficial line is, but if another if another record company gets their records out there first, make sure we get ours out there. And it was pure hypocrisy for two or three years. Was it ever an, was it ever an offence to listen to them? I mean, I know it's a ridiculous thing because you can't police it, but... You can't control the ether, can you? I mean, that kind of thing, you know, that was totalitarian governments trying... I mean, in the Soviet Union, I mean, of course, the a pirate station in the Soviet Union would have, would it be Radio Free Europe or Voice of America, you know, and of course what they did there uh, was put invest huge, huge amounts of money into jamming systems, you know, to actually uh, uh, cancel out... Um, the signal so that people couldn't listen to it unsuccessfully, of course, because people will find ways to get around it. But, okay, so in this case, it's, they couldn't really police people, stop people listening to it. And, of course, it's also, as you said earlier, not, not only in terms of record sales, but presumably it's helping certain bands to break, certain pop bands. You know, it's a vehicle for them. They might, until Radio 1, they wouldn't have had much chance of getting played on the BBC, possibly. So it's actually quite a useful way of bringing, you know, music, new music to the masses, right? Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, partly because of this sheer expanse of airtime that you've got to fill. And I remember all the stations played a lot of, you know, new releases all the time. You would frequently hear records you'd never heard anywhere else or heard before because they were new releases and they would get them out to the stations. The other thing worth mentioning that all the pirates did was they held their own club promotion nights. So they would advertise these on air as come along to the Radio London Disco tonight, you know. Mm-hmm. In fact, linking into the, the Sid stuff, I've got one of Sid's letters to Libby. Um, you know, there's that whole cache of letters Sid wrote to Libby Gorsden. Sid Barrett, this is, right? 
Yeah, 64, 65, when they were still um, communicating. Sid writes in one of those letters, um, I'm thinking of going down to the Radio London discotheque <laughs> in a couple of weeks' time. And the other connection with the Pink Floyd is um, the stations, they would hold their own talent contests. They would hold kind of like the Radio Caroline beat competition, you know, and you would have these audition nights and... Um, Pink Floyd entered a couple of those and it shows just how lowly regarded Pink Floyd were in their early days or how you know nobody was taking them seriously least of all themselves perhaps that they couldn't even get arrested they couldn't get on to those take that Roger Waters but I think you told me that didn't you first hear Pink Floyd yourself on the transistor radio coming from Radio Caroline oh yeah yeah that's where I first heard Arnold Lane and Radio Radio London famously banned Arnold Lane because it was about transvestite and they decided that the um you know, in a fit of kind of moral peak, they banned it, saying it was unsavoury, um, you know, kind of a subject matter for a song. And people do forget this. And Peel was always keen to point this out. He said, for all the talk about the rebellious image, he said, you know, the Pirates banned records. There were certain records they wouldn't play if they thought they were in poor taste, if they thought they were sick. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite funny, isn't it? You're an illegal broadcaster, but exercising censorship on behalf of the listeners. Well, you mentioned there, uh, we should come back to John Peel. So Radio London... You know, it's got a lot of kind of pop DJs, but it's got John Peel and his program, The Perfume Garden. Now, by this time, he'd already had a career in the States, hadn't he? So he'd been out in the States, West Coast, soaking up a lot of kind of uh, the music out there, all sorts of stuff, hippie stuff, rock stuff, avant-garde stuff, right? And then um, he gets employed by Radio London and, and has this program the perfume garden i mean tell us about that well peel only comes in very late in the day to radio london i mean as he used to tell it himself he um he his mother or somebody he knew somebody worked in the radio london office and just on that kind of old boys network alone that they dropped you know they dropped in and said is there a job for him and i mean peel was always very self-effacing about this kind of thing but during the last few months I think Radio London's hiring policy did ease up a little bit, you know, because they knew they were going to close down. And I see no reason to disbelieve that story, self-effacing as it is, that they just thought, oh, go on then, you know, come on board. And and um, John Peel joins literally for the last four or five months. I think he joined in February or March 67, and they closed down in August 67. And um, initially, like anybody else, he did a regular top 40 show. He was on, I think, you know, lunchtimes or three o'clock in the afternoon doing a regular Top 40 show. In fact, I've got a couple of tapes and, I mean, and Pill trying to sound like a regular DJ. I mean, they are just, you know, off the scale laughable. But as with anything else, you doubled up shifts. You, 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 did, you, you sat in for somebody else when they were on shore leave. And so he also found that nobody really wanted to do the after midnight show, the kind of graveyard shots, uh, slots. It's still known, you know. And so he was happy to do that. And as he put it himself, um, pretty pretty early on, of course, he sussed as you do suss, that no one was listening in the Radio London office at that time of night because everyone had gone home. And he got the impression nobody else on the ship was listening because they were all, they'd all just gone to bed or, as he put it, they were just watching dodgy Danish movies in the, you know, in, in the... Um, reception room and so he just dispensed with the playlist he said he kept up things like the weather forecast and the news for a while but then he just dispensed with them dispensed with the playlist and just started playing all his underground music and the first he heard about you know that this was getting back to shore was legend has it that brian epstein who was famously insomniac at that time and um, tuned in and he phoned up radio london and said this amazing show you've got after midnight what is it you know and, and as Pill put it he said they hadn't got a clue they were horrified when they knew he was doing it but by then it got the endorsement of um, brian epstein and again i see no reason to disbelieve that story you know and by then of course it had got a counter-cultural following i mean radio london um, the perfume garden was like a bulletin board for the underground he would mention international times and oz magazine on there he would play all the West Coast stuff that you weren't hearing anywhere else. And as Johnny Walker said to me when I interviewed him for the, in, for the book, he said, we couldn't play that stuff on air. We would, we had one or two people on the boat who were bringing out, you know, Country Joe and the Fish albums and Big Brother and the Holding Company. He said, we used to have to go and sit in someone's cabin and play them, you know, on a, on a deck in the cabin, you know, smoke a bit of weed and listen to them. We couldn't play them on air because they were, you know, Radio Caroline had got a bit playlisty by then. And it had right. kind of, you know, and again, it, it does point to a certain conservatism in the pirates, which is why I am always loath to give 100% endorsement to the idea that they're rebellious. They could be as conformist 
as any other broadcaster. Right. And of course, that is, you know, part of the title of your book is Selling the 60s, isn't it? It was a, it was a com- commercial aspect to it. I wanted to, this is Bob Harris, uh, BBC presenter, telling the story that you told then. He said, uh, John Peel suddenly arrived in my life with a mixture of records, poetry, letters and conversation. The format was diverse, the content an absolute revelation. The show was called The Perfume Garden. Even the name was exotic. I could hardly believe what I was hearing. Instantly clear to me this was a programme that was stepping way outside the usual boundaries of playlists and format. The airways literally crackled with the sound of a new generation of music. Captain Beefheart, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Love, The Doors, The Incredible String Band. Whoever this person was, I wanted to be him. I wanted to press a button and be there in the studio finding this amazing stuff. Getting these incredible letters from people who were feeling the same way as me. I mean, that's an amazing thing as well, isn't it? Is that community aspect of it, you know, that, which is, you know, very countercultural in the sense that, you know, people feeling, you know, listening late at night, after midnight, maybe a bit stoned, uh, but feeling there's somebody out there who's like them and somebody that you can write letters to, you know, might read your letter out and is also going to read poetry and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that was quite rad at the time, wasn't it? It's, it's unique. You're right. He, does, he locates that underground community in, in England. And um, as, as exactly as Bob Harris says, it's a coming together, together of people with like minds who realise there are other people like me out there. Um, I've got loads of tapes because, you, you, as you probably know, I've got a huge archive of um, recordings from that period. Mm. And I've got 30 or 40 hours of um, Perfume Garden programmes in that mm. time. And yes, he's playing all those artists you mentioned. Um, I remember, for example, also that he plays, he plays a promo of... Um, Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn album. And even on my crackly old recordings, which aren't always the best because they're after midnight recordings on Media Wave, you know, with a bit of static and interference, um, you can hear that they're slightly different mixes. They're promo mixes and they're not the mixes that came out on the, the album, you know. And famously, of course, Pill is the one who ended up playing Sergeant Pepper on Radio London for the first time. The, um, the album arrived out on the boat. Ed Stewart, the DJ Ed Stewart, who later went on to do Junior Choice on Radio One, he starts playing it. Pills in the studio, virtually in tears, listen to it. And very magnanimously, um, Ed Stewart turns to him and said, Well, this obviously means a lot more to you than it does me. <laughs> and he lets Pill take over his show. And Pill played the whole album. Wow. I think without, without breaks, without ads or anything, you know. That's, that's amazing, and so the, these are key moments, you know, and some of it did happen during the day. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, because obviously, as I said, you know, you know, when he went on to be a Radio 1 DJ and all the other stuff that he did, which is kind of where I knew him from, kept on breaking bands, kept on playing radical stuff, you know, didn't stick. I know he got a lot of flack, didn't he, for not sticking with the kind of hippie stuff, but he, he kept moving. And it, this is... This is this is you know a really important part of his of his career. You re- you made a few references to it then, um, Rob. Let's just hear a little bit about what life aboard ship or fort sea fort was like. I mean, um, how how did it work? So you've got these DJs and they've got different slots. I mean, were they living out there? Were they going out on a daily basis? And you know, uh, give 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 us a sort of description of life aboard a pirate radio ship. Um, basically you had your own three hour slot. And as I've mentioned before, you often did somebody else's show as well. If somebody else was on surely, because you'd, as a rule, this did vary slightly, but as a rule, you would do two weeks on one week off. And so there was always kind of fluidity between who was on the ship at any one time, you know, and who was sitting in for somebody else. You would quite often hear, you know, you'd turn on at six o'clock in the evening and it would be, hi, it's Tommy Vance here sitting in for, you know, mm-hmm. you'd be sitting in for was your other three hours of the day, which meant that you could broadcast for six hours a day. And when you think about it, um, if, you're on the, if you're broadcasting seven days a week, that's um, you're broadcasting for 42 hours a week. Now, that was an incredible training ground. That was an incredible apprenticeship because you learned on the job. And you got in, and you got slick very quickly. And to come to leave that and come back to the early days of Radio One, where you'd been used to broadcasting for maybe forty-two hours a week, to be offered maybe a a one-hour show on a Saturday was quite a come down, you know. So you did that, and you got you got pretty good pretty much straight away. Otherwise, you were just turfed off, you know. You you'd be dreadful for your first few shows, but you learned on the job. You learned as you went along. Right, so you're living out there, you'd have a bedroom, there'd be like a lounge, lounge area. The bunk. And as somebody said to me once, um, he said, that kind of solitude, he said, it either bred boredom or creativity. 
he, actually, he put it more strongly there. He said it, 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 either, it either bred boredom and malevolence or creativity. <laughs> In other words, he said there was a bit of an old school, old boys dorm kind of attitude on some of those stations because it was all men. That's the other thing. There were no female DJs. So it could be a bit like, you know, sixth form common room boys dorm kind of attitudes with, you know, all of that entails. Or you just got really creative. I mean, John Peel said to me that, he said, I was in the studio one day just doing some a, a promo for my show. And, and in the other, I was in the production studio doing that. And he said, and in the other studio, the main studio, Kenny Everett was broadcasting. And he said, I just sat there with, he said, I'm not one given to resentment and jealousy because they're very negative emotions. He said, but I was utterly jealous of the way that Kenny Everett could just sit there and spontaneously come out with this stuff hour after hour after hour without notes or anything. Because Bill said he'd write down little crib notes. He would write down little references so that he could remember what to say to sound vaguely articulate. In fact, I spent some time in the studio with Pill much later on in the, um, this would have been in the late 80s, I think. Yeah. And I saw him do that. He would write down little notes that he was going to say about the record after he had played it. Even then, he was still doing that. So, you know, it bred boredom or creativity. And part of the boredom, of course, is, you know, people just going on air and then, I don't know, what do they do? They just spend the rest of their time smoking, gazing out to see um, and, and watching dodgy Danish movies, yeah. Um, or you thought, what can I do with this slot? Right, what else right. can I do with the radio? And, of course, you know, I mean, it's a bit of an unusual situation, isn't it? The North Sea, I don't imagine the weather's that good. So you can imagine you're getting battered by the um, by storms. You know, it could get quite rough, I imagine, as well, right? I've got, I've got, I've got tapes of the DJs. You know, you hear the records jump and skip. You hear a whole load of cartridges fall off a wall. You know, you hear, you hear all that happening on a couple of occasions. DJs suddenly being replaced by somebody else because they've had to go and throw up, you know. You can imagine the intensity of the two weeks on and then the the sort of expansion of the one week off when you come ashore i'm assuming uh, rob that a boat would turn up with it every day or every other day with supplies with records with with booze with food with personnel coming back from their week off yes they all had yeah they all had they were all serviced by um by trawlers and um you know sort of supply boats yeah there's there's some footage on YouTube, um, which in fact, often when they do reference the pirates in any of these 60s documentaries, they often show that same bit of footage of the Radio Caroline tender uh, arriving at, um, there's a young Tony Blackburn on there and one or two other DJs. Um, you see the new DJs arriving and the old DJs going off. And of course, what might happen sometimes was that um, you'd go out there in a Force 9 and or a force nine might develop while you're on your way out there and it might not actually be possible to like you know land alongside it so you just have to go back again and the djs were stuck out there for longer so presumably there was a sort of as well as the djs there'd be kind of like a, there'd be back room staff a chef i assume or a cook or something right and then people who been all doing all the filing and you know opening opening the letters and responding and stuff and no 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 but you did all that yourself no apart from having a chef a cook you would have a, a basic sort of skeleton crew of people to maintain the boat um, engineers, obviously, you know, people to maintain the, t the technical equipment. But that was about it. They were fairly small crews. So let's just move on. So, you know, around about 68, the combination of the sort of broadcasting, well, actually not combination of it, was the kind of this new legislation brought an end to it. So tell us how that happened. And then you said, mentioned earlier, that Caroline kind of resurfaced, as it were, in the 70s. The um Announcement is made to close down the stations, I think, early 1967, and they eventually set a date for August the 14th, 1967, after which time it would be illegal to continue broadcasting. And by that time, there was only four or five stations left anyway. Um, Radio London closed down at three o'clock in the afternoon on August the 14th, deliberately to maximise the amount of airtime and publicity. They figured if they went on until midnight, until the actual moment, legislation came in they wouldn't have as high an audience and again you see shrewd to the last this radio london they realized if they closed down at three in the afternoon they would make the evening news bulletins which they did and it would make the next day's papers um radio 270 which was off we haven't really talked about them they were broadcasting off the yorkshire coast and radio scotland self-evident where they came from they closed down at midnight um on august the 14th but radio caroline north and south famously decided to break the legislation, uh, to ignore the legislation and continue. They um, moved their operation to Amsterdam 
everyone moved over to Amsterdam and they continued to work from there for a few months. Um, but the last few months of Pirate Radio, I think, you know, they were massive audiences. Um, everyone wanted to get their ad- advertising rates went through the roof. I mean, on the last day on Radio London to get an advert on there on their day of close down. And it was an all star lineup that final day. They had everybody. And I mean, everybody from the music industry coming on there. You know, hi, this is Ringo. I'm really sorry to see you closing down. And um, but I hope we'll come back at some shape in the future, you know. You know, hi, this is uh, Scott of the uh, Scott Scott Engel of the Walker Brothers, um, Cliff Richard, Gene Pitney, Tom Jones, you name it, every major pop star went on and did their little tribute to the pirates on the final day of Radio London. And I was listening, you know, going back to that 12-year-old kid, 13-year-old kid, I was listening in my garden. I remember it was a Monday during the um, summer school holidays. It was quite an overcast day, actually. It wasn't a particularly hot, sunny day at all. And I listened up until about three o'clock and I listened to that never to be forgotten moment where Paul Kay, who was actually the first DJ on Radio London and also the last, which was a nice touch, said um, Big L time is three o'clock and Radio London is now closing down and the air goes dead and you're you're hearing dead air. And that was a very, you know, it's a very eerie moment. There's nothing there anymore. And instinctively, like thousands of other people, I tuned to Radio Caroline because London has now gone. Just on time to hear the DJ, God bless him, Robbie Dale. He's still around. He lives in he lives in Ireland, I think, to, to this day. He came on and said, well, we're well aware that a lot of people will be joining us at this moment have just listened to the final moments of Radio London. And they had a minute silence on air mm. for Radio London, which when I think back now, I think, you know, that's 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 a very moving and very a very fraternal thing to do as well, because ultimately there was no real opposition between them. They were all in the same cause. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, hearing you describe that uh, moment now, I imagine that it was, you know, must have been a very unpopular uh, thing for the government at the time to have done. I mean, you're basically kind of closing down what, for a lot of young people, had become this incredibly exciting kind of cultural lifeline. And suddenly through, you know, legislation and, you know, because the powers that be have decided that it's not on anymore, that they're going to just turn it off. I mean, that must have been, was that a very, that must have been, felt like a very unpopular thing for one's government to have done. Speaking purely as a kid on the, on the verge of his teens, you know, having gone from a situation where you could listen to any one of a number of six or seven stations, suddenly you were just left with Caroline. And it was there was a six-week gap before Radio 1 started. I mean, I was there you know, on that first morning listening to Radio 1, listening to Tony Blackburn playing Flowers in the Rain, you know, for the first time. But with Radio 1, there was a kind of, in the early days, I'm not going to knock it because at weekends Radio Radio 1 still continued being really good. It had a kind of Rethian quality to it. All of the hip underground DJs and alternative DJs like Peel and Emperor Roscoe and the rest of them, they were on at the weekends. And weekends on Radio 1 were always good. But during weekday, you see, they didn't increase their, their needle time quota very much. So you had all these sessions on there. And as John Walters, John Peel's producer, once said to me, they could, he said, they could have interpreted that any way they wish. They could have had sessions from Hendrix or Pink Floyd or Traffic or, you know, or Cream. They could have had all this stuff on all day long. But what they did instead, they would get the BBC in-house orchestras, you know, like the Northern Dance Orchestra or Joe Loss's band, you know, and they would interpret the hits of the day. And so you would, halfway through a show, you would get one of these, John Peel always claimed to have heard um, the Joe Loss Orchestra doing their version of Purple Haze. And Walter said, I have no reason to disbelieve him because he said, what would they have done? They would have gone and got the sheet music. Sheet music would have existed then for all, you know, still for all music. And you would have interpreted it in the style of the Northern Dance or the Joe Loss Orchestra. And they would have done their popping, you know, trumpety version of Purple Haze. I can remember hearing a BBC version of Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows performed by one of those really straight, <laughs> straight tempo orchestras. That was something to be, you know. But even there, you know, some of the sessions were quite good. But um, but it sounded it it sounded a bit forced, and it sounded like the 
Radio One trying to be like the Pirates, but not being able to be like the Pirates, you know. And of course, you know, they did many great programs and carried on. I mean, in a way, Six Music's kind of like taken over a bit from that kind of vibe, hasn't it, in the more recent years. And uh, Radio One's got a bit more dance orientated. But I mean, um, then of course, later on, there's the there's the sort of as broadcasting opens up, there's the more commercial stations start to proliferate. So there's there wasn't that need anymore. And of course, you know, we haven't got time to go into this now. There was this whole other Bristol, you know, urban London uh, pirate radio, wasn't there, in the 80s and 90s, and uh, still going on now. But of course, in the era that we're in now, right, Robin, you know, with internet radio, including Soho Radio, of course, um, there just isn't any need for that, is there? There isn't such a thing, really, as a kind of like a, a pirate station. I mean, you can't do it you, by definition, because anybody can broadcast, really. Yeah, I've thought about this recently, actually. I mean, you couldn't put a boat out at sea now because the, the, the nature of international waters has changed and, and, and the judicial waters. And also with, you know, more recent threats of terrorism, I mean, there would be a gunboat out there within minutes to sort them out, you know. And as you say, internet radio has kind of generally made that made it um, less, of a, less of a need for it now. Um, but although on the odd occasions I'm in London, I still hear the occasional over-modulated, you know, FM pirates still playing you know, old jungle stuff from 92 or whatever, and it's quite pleasing to hear them still. But, I mean, to bring things full circle, to bring this conversation full circle, if you like, I do find that my listening habits now, because of internet radio, have reverted to exactly the same kind of listening habits I had when I was 12, when these stations were at their peak. Um, in other words, I have a bunch of presets on my internet radio, I listen to a station, and I only turn over when it starts getting boring or plays some music I don't like. I think we're in a golden age of radio these days, actually. It's amazing. You know, and it's and what's also extraordinary, I think, is that the way that, despite the, against the odds in some ways, that radio has held its own against video isn't it is that yeah for sure there's been an explosion of you know via youtube and stuff of of video broadcasting too but actually radios you know through podcasting and internet radios is strong if not stronger than ever isn't it it is and that's and that's really gratifying to know yeah yeah i'm i'm the same as you i'm i'm quite an idealist i love radio there was a period in the 80s where i kind of fell out of love because you know, 80s pop radio seemed to be getting so crass and smashy and nicey and horrible. And I hated the fact that I was falling out of love with something I really deeply loved. And I was glad to see that rekindled by, yeah, waves of London-based pirates, dance pirate stations, and then later on by, by internet radio, which if you'd have said to me, even as recently as about the mid-90s, you know, what would be your science fiction idea that would be a radio that could pick up every station in the world well we're, we're there now. it's no longer a fiction right it's no longer a fiction but alas we have run out of broadcast time again uh, we'll be back i think with another program on pirate radio and its second iteration or later iteration the urban pirate radio stations of the 80s and 90s but in the meantime thanks very much rob for walking us through or sailing us through that wonderful golden age of 1960s countercultural offshore pirate radio. Cheers. I thought it might be quite good if we finish with a bit of Radio London. John Peel, you know, legendary broadcaster, John Peel, in his earlier phase as somewhat of a hippie on uh, Radio London in his perfume garden show. This is a very nice clip when a fan of his had sent in a piece of music that they recorded especially for him. And about him, in fact. And we will see you, hear you next time for more countercultural tales from the other side. Happy sailing. I am Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. And here is John Peel. Time for us now to play this superb record, which has to be the greatest thing I've heard this year ever. No, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It's easily the nicest thing that I've heard this year because it's very close to me, obviously, and to you too, I hope. It's called The Perfumed Garden Blues, or John Peel's Lament, and it's recorded on his mother's piano and with his own home tape recorder by Geoffrey Prowse. And the quality is still remarkably good, considering that, and you must listen closely to it. Stop whatever you're doing and listen, because I think this is magnificent, I really do.
by the Germans. 